Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where the smoke is rising in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 69, which begins with Wes and the other raiders leaving, and it ends with Max dragging himself through the underbrush. We mentioned yesterday that Wes was very quick to leave the situation, but what stands out to me in this opening shot is not so much the leaving, it's the arriving that we saw at the end of yesterday's minute that we see more of in this minute. There were seven vehicles that left the Raider camp in pursuit of Max. Six cars, one motorcycle. When we catch up with them after the daytime shift, it's just the Lord Humongous's truck and Max. The other six vehicles are nowhere to be found. After all of these shenanigans with the explosions and the gas and the dog and everything like that, one car shows up, which means there are five other vehicles that either A, got bored, turned around, and went back to camp, <laughs> or B, got taken out in an amazing action scene that we didn't get to watch. Oh, my best guess is that they didn't have enough gas to continue the pursuit. Yeah. They had to turn around at some point where they knew they could still get back. It's like one of those situations where someone maybe takes too much food at a buffet and then realizes they can't finish it all, and so they have to leave a bunch of it there. Or they think, oh, I'm going to move this giant pile of bricks, and then by the time they're halfway done, they're like dead tired and they can't complete it. They are all gung-ho to do this thing because there goes Wes and there goes this other car and... We're going to follow our guy. And then they realize, oh, wait, no, can't keep doing this. Right. It's like they reach that point of no return and decide to turn back. Yeah. Which, considering that this whole action is not exactly a sanctioned mission, it's not necessarily a humongous approved activity. Right. <laughs> so anybody who followed Wes and went after Max is probably going to get in trouble. Yeah. There's probably a whole bunch of dogs on chains. <laughs> People that were acting just a little bit too quickly. Yes. Not using proper judgment. Right. Which I got to say, when you think of raiders, you don't necessarily think of proper judgment. No. Not typically. No. <laughs> Maybe that's one reason why Humongous was able to gather all these disparate groups together. Because he has a cleverness about him that prevents him from making rash, stupid mistakes. Mm -hmm. Which we have seen Wes do a couple of times. Absolutely. Before we move on, I have a question to ask. Okay. Do you think that there was any reason for Wes to not want the marauders who came on the scene, that he might not want them to investigate the scene below. Do you think his quick exit was to prevent them from investigating the scene? I think his quick exit from this situation stems directly from his current mood. He is upset, he is frustrated, he is angry that things did not go his way, and so he does not want to hang around and do his due diligence. He wants to storm off because... 
things didn't go his way and he wanted things to happen and they didn't and now he's all bummed out and people are going to get mad at him. So he's upset. He doesn't want to hang around. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's the impression that I get. (laughs) I'm good with that because I can picture that. Yeah. When you have an altercation with somebody, you reach that point where you're just done. Yeah. Okay, this is over. We're not going to argue anymore. We're done. Yeah. And the thing is, Wes could still send those guys down. It's not like he's out of units. It's not like we're playing chess here and he's down to just his king and a pawn. Right. He has two pawns that just showed up. Yeah. With perhaps more pawns behind them. Exactly. We don't know. They could still be coming. They could still be in pursuit. So this is his version of storming off in a huff. Yeah. He has seen how badly he's losing in the here and now. He has flipped the game board and he's going to take his toys and go home. All right. Leaving Max just sitting behind a rock, sheltered back there and... Wes and the other cars drive away, and it leaves Max in what I consider his lowest point in this film. I wouldn't say it's his lowest point ever. Certainly not. Because I think his lowest point ever was out on the highway that day when Jesse and Sprague got run over. But this is probably a close second. I think it's a very close second. Yeah. Because back in the original Mad Max, his family was fairly standard. He had a standard relationship with his wife and a standard relationship with his child. Very loving, and they meant everything to him. And that's very powerful, and when you lose them, especially right in front of you, that's devastating. But this relationship was anything but standard. He was so emotionally invested in his car and so emotionally invested in his dog that once again, especially for the second time, Seeing them taken away right in front of him, I think it probably brought him pretty close down to his first low point. Yeah, and back in minute 61, he explicitly told Papa Gallo, I have everything I need here. I've got my car and my dog, and that's all I need in life. There's nothing else you can tempt me with. Mm -hmm. And now he's lost all of that in one fell swoop. He's got no wheels, no food, no water. His dog's been killed. He is one guitar and a cowboy hat away from being a country western singer. The expression on Max's face and his motions, I think we both read a lot into it. Not necessarily the same things. Yeah. The way he drops his head. I read despair. Mm Mm-hmm. I also read pain and weakness from his injuries. I think that this is the moment that he is emotionally realizing what has happened to him, that his car is gone and his dog is gone. Looking at it now, I definitely understand where you've been coming from these past couple of days, talking about all this loss. I'm really seeing it on the screen as we watch it, and a little embarrassed I didn't really realize it sooner. (laughs) But you're definitely the more empathetic of the two of us. (laughs) I I think that's it. A lot of the technical things that you point out, I completely missed that. Yeah. But some of the more emotional things that I point out, Mm -hmm. you didn't see. Why you make a good pair. Exactly. I think Max dropping his head like this is probably the most we'll ever get out of him as far as mourning and whatnot. I think so. Now, granted, we've already seen him express way more emotion in the first movie than he has in this instance. But when I say Max, I mean like post-tragedy Max, hardened wasteland 
Mad Max. I want to keep that statement in mind. I'm curious as we see where he goes from here and his further interactions with people, I want to think about his state of grief in relation to his interactions with other people. Okay. I want to keep that in mind. Gotcha. Because I'm curious if this low state of despair runs over Mm -hmm. into the rest of the movie. Yeah. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the compound, the compound dwellers are continuing to prepare to leave. It is now morning, mid-morning, whatever time of day it is, and there is one compound dweller who is up on a latticed support, and he's messing with a big old canopy, and just because he's up in that high point, he's able to see smoke rising on the horizon. And it's not a big deal that he's up there, but I just wonder what the heck he thinks he's doing, because... In a later wide shot, we see that the canopy he's fiddling with has been taken down. They want to take that with them, obviously, sure. But if he is looking to take down the canopy on his end, he's not going to do it reaching up from that support tower to the tarp. It's not like he's going to yank on the tarp and unhook the thing and let it down. No, there's a guideline that goes from the tarp up over the post down to the ground. He should be down on the ground where that tarp is secured down undo that let it out nice and slowly they'll see someone at the bottom of the support everything hunky-dory i just don't understand what he's doing up there and why why do i even care because it is so small of a detail i don't know why i'm so upset about it well you care because you're a minute by minute er i i guess i guess it's just halfway through my rant i realized how dumb it is I think we mentioned back a little while ago when we were talking about the gyrocopter being able to carry both the captain and Max and the dog and the fuel and how that took you out of the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think we said it then, but if not, I'll say it again. You are not a worrier. You don't worry about things. Not really. I'm the worrier. But when you do worry about something, when you do notice something wrong, you go all in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true of your entire life. Yeah. So this thing has pulled you out. So you're going all in on it. Yeah. I think that's why you care so much about this dumb little detail. When we go camping, we like to go tent camping and we go with Porter, who was our guest back in minute 65. We love to take our tarps and we string them up into this giant canopy that goes just whole hog over the campground and we have a lot of fun stringing it up. So I think that might be why I latched on so strongly to this tarp thing because I know how hard it can be when you've got something suspended up like that and how taut it can be and it's, I don't know, I need to move on from it. (laughs) (laughs) People don't need to know why I was freaking out about it because it's really not important. What is important is that the compound dweller saw smoke rising and pointed it out to everybody. One thing I noticed about these compound dweller lookouts though is that they love just pointing stuff out to people there doesn't seem to be a vetting process in the information that they share they just see something and they instantly shout it like the lookout that saw the beginning of the torture montage he just saw something happening and was like hey everybody look at that and this guy saw smoke and said hey everybody look at that and i'm like okay yeah i know you're a lookout i know you are supposed to keep an eye on things but a column of smoke rising that's pretty important 
to call out and whatnot. Hey, everybody, let's look at our friends getting tortured. Maybe not encourage everybody to look at that. Like, use your best judgment. And I would like to see maybe a little training program for the walk lookouts. Be like, okay, we're going to put you up on the tower. We're going to need you to look out. This is stuff that doesn't need to be in the movie. I just need it to be in my head canon. Okay. Well, speaking of something that's not in the movie, I believe it was a deleted scene or maybe it was just in the shooting script. I can't remember. Way back when, when Max was originally driving up to the compound with Nathan in his own black on black. We didn't see it on screen, but apparently there were signals, like mirror signals. Yes, I remember bouncing us talking back and about forth. that. So the Marauders had their own lookouts up on the pinnacles and all sorts of places where they could see all sorts of things going on. And they would signal to each other back and forth, not yell out for everybody to hear. Yeah. No, when you first started ranting, I was not on your side. And then by the time you finished, I was on your <laughs> side. <laughs> Just, the lookouts need to calm down a little bit. There could be some subtlety yeah. in what they do. Yeah. Not everything needs to be a, hey, everybody stop what you're doing and look at this. Maybe some things just need to be sent in a message to Papagallo. Yeah. Or to the people on the turrets. Right. The important thing for this scene is that the overexcited compound dweller shouting out alerts the gyro captain of this situation. And so he is just standing there in the middle of the frame and he walks over to the edge of the compound and he pulls out his spyglass. And I'm so glad to see the return of the spyglass. It's such an iconic prop for this character, and I'm glad that he still has it. And we don't just get the return of the spyglass. We get the return of spyglass vision with the X in the middle of the screen. But he pulls it out. He extends it pretty much all of the way and then holds it up to his face. And as I see him bring the spyglass up to his face, I'm kind of distracted by his mullet-ish hairdo. Yeah, I kind of looked at his hairdo like the natural result of always wearing his cap. Yeah, like a matted down long hair arrangement. Yes. Yeah, it just looked like he had a weird mullet. And the way it was spilling over his jacket, mm. it was just weird looking. Yeah, like, it just, was. Just strange. So that was a little distracting. And thankfully, we cut away from it into the spyglass vision. And we can see very picturesquely the column of smoke rising up between two of those pinnacles at the edge of the valley. Framed very nicely. I wonder, and do you think, that they saw the fireball? Ooh. Or do you think the first person who saw it, the lookout, only saw the smoke? I'm willing to bet that they were milling around, preparing to leave, and so I don't think they necessarily saw the fireball, but I'm willing to bet that they might have heard the echo of the explosion. Right. If they weren't distracted by doing other things, they might have heard the explosion. Yeah. Although it doesn't look that far away. It's hard to tell. because it is, half the time we see it is through a spyglass. Exactly. And the way the valley rises and creates a horizon that's probably much closer than the actual horizon, it's almost like they're in a giant basin. And so it's hard to truly judge the distance. I agree. But as the gyro captain looks through the spyglass, he says, oh, hell. And then we cut back out of the spyglass as the gyro captain lowers it and turns around. He says, you blew it, you fool. As if he expected this to happen. The gyro captain knew about the booby trap, didn't he? Yeah. So when he says you blew it, you fool, he means literally. Yeah. You blew up the car, you idiot. Yeah. 
not only did you mess up your chance to get away, you also literally blew up your car. I especially love that it took zero time for the gyro captain to know that it was Max's smoke that was billowing up into the sky. Yeah, because in one instance, you could argue that it's the billowing smoke of a car that Max blew up. Like, he was getting pursued, and he did maneuvers that caused the cars to crash into each other and blow up. We saw it happen with the Knight Rider. So, it's happened in the past, but the gyro captain takes one look at that column and says, Oh, that has got to be the interceptor. Yeah. And he stands there after he collapses down the spyglass, and you can watch him, and you can see that he's thinking, mulling something over in his head. I appreciate that he does take a moment to think, but I also appreciate that he doesn't take too long to think right and then he walks off screen very purposefully Mm -hmm. i look at this situation as the gyro captain's heroic moment in the story that he and the feral child are putting together this story that the feral child is passing down to other generations from the information that they've pooled together and this is the situation where the gyro captain gets to save max from the ditch again Feral Child got to help him past the raider camps and seemed like a hero, and now the gyro captain gets his own heroic moment as he swoops in to save Max from his misfortune. There are some times in this movie that the gyro captain comes off as very creepy and just like he's not meant to be a good character. Yeah. This is definitely not one of those moments. He comes off as a really good person and a great character in this moment. And smart, too. He was, back when we very first met him, he was bragging about how clever he was. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really always show it. But here, we see his quick mind at work. Yeah. And his understanding of other human beings, also. That he immediately picked up on what had happened and had the idea of what he could do and immediately went off to go do it. Yeah. He comes off really well in this scene, and I really like him in this scene. I have to wonder if one of the things that he was mulling over in his head was whether or not Max necessarily deserved to get saved. Because looking at it from an outsider's perspective, Max did not treat the gyro captain well. But the gyro captain doesn't really seem to realize that. And I think that's the major difference between us and him, is that he considers Max a friend or an associate or a partner, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us are looking at that like, no, dude, what are you talking about? That's not the situation at all. But in his mind, he sees Max as worth saving. Yes, he sees Max as worth risking his own life to save. Yeah. And that is placing a very high value on another person. Is that person worth my life? So, yeah, that really does say a lot about the captain's attitude and feelings towards Max. Yeah. I wish that Max could see what we just saw. Yeah. And understand that... Somebody, perhaps for the first time since Jesse, somebody values him so highly. Yeah. And wants to be a part of his life, wants to be a partner, wants to be an equal, and will risk their own life to save him. He doesn't get that. He doesn't see that part. Which is a shame, because everybody needs to know and see and witness for themselves that they are cared about, especially to such an extent that someone will risk their life for you. 
I find it interesting that you instantly went to Jesse in your metaphor or analogy or whatever it is. I don't know. English is hard. Because I thought of a different character when you were talking about someone who cares about Max and has his back. I thought of Goose. Goose was Max's partner all through that first movie until the Acolytes took him out. Goose was someone who had Max's back, had a different disposition, but they were such good friends. And so the gyro captain constantly talking about, oh, partners, partners, partners. Max already had a partner. So the gyro captain represents Goose, and the feral child represents Jesse and Sprague. I think yes, so. I, I agree. I, I hadn't thought about it that way before. These are surrogates to replace the people that he lost in the first movie, and he has that pushback of, no, I don't want more people again. And while I think he does reach some sort of appreciation of them by the end of the movie, he still sends them away. Yes. Like, he's not going to keep them, but at least he can appreciate them. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to get into the end of the movie. Yeah. I, I have so many thoughts. And by the end of the movie, I won't remember half of them. Yeah, we are getting very close. Yes, we to are. To the end of this movie. This event that we are seeing now is the event that directly leads to the climax of the movie. Right. We are very close. Yeah, we are... 20 minutes? 25 minutes? We are looking at 25 minutes of runtime... Five weeks of podcast left in this movie. It flies by so fast. There is one last shot in this scene, and that's of Max dragging himself through the smoke and underbrush. He's not content to just sit by that rock. He is on the move. And there's an interesting effect that George Miller uses on this shot, and it's a double exposure. So he took the negative, he duplicated it, and then he laid them back on top of each other, but slightly offset, so that the whole thing just seems very, my notes call it wavy, almost fluid. Yes. The idea that things are drifting apart and then coming back together, and nothing seems to be really sharp. And I think that's the mindset or state of being that Max is in right now, in a fog of injury <laughs> for lack of a better term and we have no idea where he's going what direction he's head off in the only thing we do know is he didn't go up the hill yep and i'm willing to bet he doesn't know either all he knows is that he doesn't want to stay by that rock and just lay down and go to sleep right max is one of those people whose entire life is built around the idea of struggle, and he is going to struggle until someone takes that life from him. He's not the kind that is just going to sit by that rock and feel sorry about himself until he just bleeds out. Mm -hmm. He's going to stay on the move and fight, because that's just who Max is. Although, I gotta say, in the real world, something happens to you like that. Don't wander away. You stay put. Because it'll be hard to people to find you? Yes, because effectively, he just sent this gigantic smoke signal up into the sky. And a normal person with normal emotions would assume that someone is going to see that signal and is going to come help. Mm. But this isn't a normal setting. Right. And Max is emotionally... Mm, I don't want to call him abnormal. <laughs> he just isn't going to assume someone's going to come looking for him. He's definitely not going to assume that someone friendly 
is going to come looking for him. Ah, good point. Because he has sent up a smoke signal. Now all the marauders know where he is too. Exactly. And even marauders or scavengers that aren't involved with this situation can probably see that pillar of smoke. So I see a lot of, I'd say, wisdom in a way, as far as getting as far from that smoke pillar as possible. But it does make it trickier for people to find Max if they want to help Max. Like the gyro captain is going towards that pillar of smoke as it's going to be revealed tomorrow. And if Max is too far away from that pillar, it might be tricky for the gyro captain to find him. Yes. It doesn't prove to be, but it's that type of thing. (laughs) Because Max is so injured that he does not get far. Not really. So, like I said, spoiler alert, the gyro captain is going to find Max tomorrow. We're going to see how that process more or less works. And it's our Fresh Eyes Friday episode, so we're going to have a guest to come talk about that with us. And it's going to be good. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 69 of The Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.